Good Monday morning and welcome to another episode of the podcast Insanity, a peace of mind. I am your host, Stephanie. Episode 133, and I am going to talk about the concepts of self-criticism, self-neglect, self-compassion, self-care, and ways to increase self-care, and why this is important. And I have some positive psychology resources that I am going to use in order to talk about these different things. First, let's define self-criticism. Self-criticism is usually a way we, as human beings, talk to ourselves. It's generally from a negative or punitive attitude, and it's designed to basically punish us for the things we perceive as inadequacies. People who tend to be self-critical are often hurt. They have a lot of self-defeating thoughts and personal weaknesses are quite intolerable for them because the thought is where we start blaming ourselves for being weak or for not being acceptable in some physical way or emotional way or any other thing. Individuals in high self-criticism or high in self-criticism generally engage in harsh scrutiny and negative evaluation. And they have a lot of fear around being criticized or disapproved of. Self-criticism has been known to be key in a lot of different kinds of psychopathology. So the relationships between self-criticism and depression, social anxiety, even eating disorders has been pretty well researched. So this self-criticism is pretty toxic in personal and social relationships. It also increases depression, which makes sense. The part of you that represents or presents as the self-critical part is your inner critic. And the inner critic is designed to keep you aware of where you are in meeting goals, achieving personal expectations. It monitors your weaknesses and mistakes. It tells you that if you don't study harder, you're not going to pass this test. It helps you see that if you slack on this particular project, then you probably won't get the raise or the promotion that you want. It tells you you misspoke and made kind of a fool of yourself at that last social gathering. And it is a very active part of you. Its function is to prevent you from making mistakes and motivate you towards the things that you want to achieve and accomplish. And when it acts like this, it can be considered or it acts as an internal monitor to keep you safe from harm and makes sure you are meeting certain expectations and conditions. So in that regard, it's a pretty useful part of you because the goal of the inner critic to keep you safe, to keep you motivated, to keep you away from harm is really how we maintain optimal human functioning. The 
ability to monitor our behavior is how we are able to make changes when we are not living aligned with our expectation or our goals or our values. So with that being said, it is not the function of the inner critic that ultimately is the problem. It is the nature or how we evaluate how the inner critic is working. So we have current behavior and we have a goal and our current behavior is not helping us meet the goal. And so our inner critic comes online, tells us we're a failure, asks us, asks us how we could have let the ball drop on this thing, tells us that if we don't get our stuff together, we're not going to meet this goal and on and on and on. And this is the way the inner critic speaks to us. Usually those kinds of things don't tend to be particular, particularly motivating. So while the inner critics job is admirable, the way it goes about it is very often what undermines actual success or motivation or progress. The inner critic mostly monitors failure. So the nature of the feedback from the inner critic is usually negative. And the negative feedback presented by the inner critic is usually in the form of guilt or shame or anger. It's very rarely supportive. It's very often harsh. And in this kind of self-critical inner critic feedback loop, we feel powerfully the guilt and the shame and the anger. And this creates a vicious cycle of depressing our mood and then when our mood is depressed, we are less motivated and our self-criticism and inner critic gets more active, condemning our new unproductive behaviors and our self-criticism starts back up again and our inner critic gets noisy and we get less motivated and less energized to do something. So it's a pretty typical, unpleasant cycle that we get into. So let's do some examples of what our inner critic might sound like. I'm not going to attach these to any specific thing. I might just see if I can come up with some things that have maybe popped into my mind over the last few weeks. Um, okay, you don't work hard enough. You don't use your time wisely. You can't get anything right. Everybody is so much better at this than you are. What is wrong with you? Those are some of the things that my inner critic says. Yours might say similar things or they might sound a little bit different. The tone and characteristics of the inner critic are generally blaming when you do something wrong. They're typically, the, the language or the characteristics are typically comparative, meaning ranking your achievements or accomplishes accomplishments next to somebody else's. The inner critic generally sets impossibly high standards. And the inner critic very rarely looks at what you've already done or what you've already accomplished. And it is a very black and white thinking part because it makes you feel like you're always this or never that. 
And so it uses huge generalizations to get its point across. Personal weaknesses or failures, if that's what you want to call it, or not achieving a desired goal causes a lot of negative emotions in people. Not all the time, but in general. And a lot of these emotions are shame and guilt and inadequacies. And then we feel vulnerable and we engage in all kinds of protective behaviors, which usually increase anxiety and depression and isolation. The self-criticism that comes after we have experienced some sort of weakness or missed opportunity, I'm trying not to say failure because I don't actually like that word, but generally these, this self-criticism triggers a lot of negative behavior towards ourselves. And the self-criticism is its goal is to correct the weakness rather than offer compassion or kindness or self-care, which is what we should be doing. We should be tuning into and being more aware and understanding of just those feelings of not meeting the goal or not reaching the potential of where you wanted to be. Basically towards the suffering that you feel because you encountered a personal weakness of some kind. And it requires you to be aware of your feelings and then consider what compassion you can offer yourself when you are feeling that kind of distress. Because if you are not willing to attend to your own well-being in this way, then the option is a neglect of the self, which is where the behavior is a complete abandonment of acknowledging or taking care of your needs. And self-neglect can persist long after the distress or discomfort of the weakness that you encountered. Self-critical thinking and comparing yourself, usually in the negative, to someone else or other successful people, can in extreme cases result in all kinds of dysfunctional and negative behaviors. Self-neglect is where a person turns away from his or her most important personal needs at the time of suffering. If you're struggling with anything in your life or any consistent issue, self-criticism and self-neglect is so easy to fall into. Even at the slightest weakness or difficulty, it takes a decent amount of work to incorporate self-care and self-compassion. Self-compassion involves treating yourself with care and concern when you're dealing with whatever your personal inadequacies are or your mistakes or whatever your painful life situations might be. There is evidence to prove that self-compassion is a predictor of overall well-being and increased resilience in people. There are three main components of self-compassion, according to Kristen Neff and Christopher 
Germer, and they are self-kindness as opposed to self-judgment, a sense of common humanity instead of isolation, and mindfulness as opposed to over-identification. Self-kindness refers to the tendency to care and understand what you're going through rather than be critical. So instead of berating yourself or attacking yourself for whatever your shortcomings might be or whatever difficulties you're going through or whatever hardships you're trying to deal with, you would treat yourself with some unconditional acceptance and compassion. And those types of behaviors are behaviors that calm your nervous system. They're self-regulating and they decrease the momentary symptoms that could be extreme in some cases that you're feeling when you have let your inner critic take over. Not every trial or difficulty needs to be fixed or controlled in an instant. There can be a lot of benefit to a pause and a self-compassionate response where you offer yourself some soothing and some comfort before you jump into fix-it mode or problem solving. The idea of common humanity in the idea of self-compassion is where you recognize that human beings are imperfect and all people fail and make mistakes and all people have serious life challenges. And so this idea of self-compassion connects us with each other in our flawed and suffering condition so that we don't view ourselves as the weakest or the most broken or the biggest failure or whatever it is you're saying to yourself. All people struggle. All people have difficulties. And just as a obvious side note, we can't even begin to know what other people's struggles are or where they feel their weaknesses lie or how they are struggling with relationships or mental health or education or family. We are just completely unaware of the specifics of people's suffering, but we know they do. And so cultivating a sense of common humanity when you are in your distress or when your critical parts have come up can help reduce the feelings of isolation. And you can realize that you are not alone in your suffering. And then there is mindfulness. And in the context of self-compassion, this is where you become aware of your painful experience or experiences, and you're not ignoring them, and you're not amplifying them. They are not you. This is a moment in time. And true, it could be a long moment in time, but it is a moment in time that is not the whole of you. And so being aware in a mindfulness state where you extend compassion towards yourself gives you this space to decrease your fixation on whatever trial you're going through or whatever weakness you are berating yourself over or any of the other things that are going on in your distressed moments. So that's what the mindfulness component is. So let's talk about some statements of self-compassion that are pretty general and you can begin to try them on. 
in the face of a an expected accomplishment that maybe you missed, perhaps you were trying for a raise or a promotion and you were up against other people, you could use the phrase, I tried my best. And that is a self-compassionate statement. You could say, I'm having a difficult time right now. Things are hard. That is a self-compassionate statement. I learned something is also compassionate. Maybe next time I can do something different. Another statement you could use. So those are self-compassion statements and thoughts that you can say to yourself to help bring some resilience and some oh, peace, maybe maybe in a moment or two of distress. So the characteristics of a self-compassionate voice include the understanding that you as a human being are not perfect. The self-compassionate voice also makes you aware of what is going on and how to take care of yourself first and foremost. This is before you try and fix it. This is before you ask for advice. This is before you make any big decisions. You take a minute and care for yourself. The self-compassionate voice is aware that everyone makes mistakes. You are not alone. It accepts you even though you make mistakes. It accepts you in your mistakes. And a compassionate voice cares about your personal well-being and wants what's best for you. All right, let's talk about the self-care piece of this. The term self-care describes the actions or behaviors somebody might take in order to recover or maintain or improve physical, emotional, and mental well-being. Self-care is necessary in order to meet physical and mental needs. And some acts of physical self-care would include exercise, good sleep, attending to potential medical issues, those kinds of things. Self-care for your emotional or mental state includes meditating, journaling, journaling, maybe going to therapy, or finding some ways to express yourself. So it is useful to differentiate between what is reactive self-care and what is proactive self-care. If we are engaging in self-care that is reactive, then it is generally in response to existing symptoms, meaning we already feel crappy. We may be sick and run down. We may be gaining weight. We may feel tired and lethargic. We may be struggling with headaches or digestive issues. And so we react to these symptoms and we say, oh, I've got to do something to take care of myself, right? Reactive self-care is an attempt to take care of the things after they have already happened. That's part of life. We are going to do that. There will always be reactive self-care that we engage in. On the other side is proactive self-care. And that is what we do every day to maintain and improve health. So proactive self-care often involves some of the same things that reactive self-care does, right? We might be exercising. We might be trying to eat better. We might be trying to reduce stress, but it is done in a proactive stance and aimed at keeping ourselves healthy for the long term. Not just this quick fix of behavior modification to deal with something that might be a disruptive onset, right? And so it's important 
that you make a clear distinction for yourself between your reactive and proactive self-care. I think I've talked about this before. If it's something that you're already doing and it is a fairly well entrenched part of your life, it is probably self-care, but then I want you to find something else. Not that some, not something that takes a lot of time and not something that takes a lot of effort, but something else that you can include as proactive self-care. So you try, so the example of this would be, you are trying to stay healthy by being proactive, but you are also dealing with symptoms. And so you are reactive as well. So just tune into that and pay attention to where and how your self-care practices are symptom related or preventative, because this is an important thing to understand. All right. So I want to, so we have, what we have is the, uh, this, this group of word of phrases. Okay. I'm, stumbling over my words and I apologize for that, but we have this group of phrases and they include self-criticism, the inner critic, self-neglect, self-compassion, and self-care. Now I want to just take and go through some examples of what and how all of these might play out together. So we are generally triggered into this self-criticism when we encounter a personal weakness or failure. So for example, you may have been studying really hard to pass a really important, a really important exam and you missed it by, by one point. Okay. That is the weakness that you have encountered. And all of a sudden you're feeling really stressed out because this is a class you have to have in order to take more upper level classes. And it was the only time it's offered. And there is a whole lot of stress going on. And you had been really taxing yourself and working hard. So you have this weakness, you didn't pass, you have this feeling, which is stress. And what you need is rest. Because right now at this moment, that is the only thing that is going to rejuvenate you. And so your thought in order to offer up some self-compassion is I tried my best and I can learn and I will be able to make this work in another term. And the self-care then is to take time to rest. So that's kind of how the weakness, the feelings, the needs, the thoughts, and the self-care work out when confronting a personal weakness, right? I am a terrible mother. You've just had a terrible experience with your 10 year old and everybody's mad at everybody. And your self-critic, your, your self-criticism and your inner critic has gone on high alert. And it's telling you that you have failed, that you should have done all these things different. And the feelings are enormous feelings of inadequacy and insecurity. What you need is some way to feel competent, right? And so your self-compassionate thought is, I just messed up this one thing. It's not the end of the world. I can apologize and repair. And then self-care is to sit down, journal about it, and maybe reflect on how you can and will do something different next time. That is the way to deal with your self when you encounter a personal weakness, which you will probably 55 times tomorrow, it will happen in one way or another. Self care is more or less synonymous with self compassion in action. It is the act of being self compassionate. Self care results naturally when we take an empathetic and compassionate stance towards ourself. A self-compassionate human being genuinely wants people to feel 
okay, right? So if you were talking to a friend, you would never talk to a friend the way you talk, the way your self-critic or your inner critic talks to yourself. And you need to keep that in mind because it is really worth paying attention to how you interact with other people versus how you interact with yourself when met with disappointments or personal personal weaknesses, either in them that they are bringing to you for help and support or in yourself that you have noticed. The reason you need self-care is because self-care is what initiates self-compassion. A self-compassion person, a self-compassionate person, or someone who is exhibiting self-compassion shifts attention from fixing the problem immediately, because probably the problem might need to be fixed, but it doesn't need to be fixed right now. Shifts the problem, shifts away from fixing the problem right now into just being okay with the way you messed up or the way you're feeling about how you messed up. Acknowledging that common humanity where you are cutting yourself some slack. After being confronted with the weakness, self-compassion is the behavior and the process to encourage these kinds of self-care behaviors. Now, if you're sitting back thinking that you are the kind of person who is motivated by criticism and certainly motivated by your self-criticism, I get it. In some ways, I am very much motivated by self-criticism. And if I were to think about it, it's probably not exactly self-criticism. It's probably just aggressive motivation, right? But there is room for that idea to exist. But I would like to make a clarification. Self-criticism is not a long-term motivator. And so if you're resisting this idea of self-compassion because you think it will make you lazy or unmotivated, or you think you will eventually learn to be okay with all of your weaknesses, that is a hundred percent untrue statement. Self-compassion actually allows you to evaluate your behavior and to see the real places you can make real changes instead of just a litany of excuses or black and white thinking or all or nothing thinking that comes from being self-critical. Because there is a different starting point for improvement when you are coming from a place of self-compassion. This starting point is fueled by kindness and encouragement. And actually, the research shows that self-criticism can hinder self-improvement because it is associated with rumination and procrastination. So if you are self-critical and you are trying to motivate yourself that way, the more likely result is that you will just spend a lot of time thinking about how you can get better, but put off actually doing anything because there's no, you're not actually motivated. You're just still kicking against the frustrations and the triggers of the weakness in the first place. I want to make sure I stress this point. Self-compassionate behavior is not at odds with behavioral change or doing something different. It is not passive. It's not pitying. It's not a behavior or a way of being that's going to let you off of the hook. The research actually shows that self-compassion makes people motivated. It is full of encouragement. It is 
lower in self-criticism and just as high in holding yourself to high personal standards. And when you fail to meet those standards, reacting to yourself with kindness rather than criticism is actually more motivating than the self-criticism itself. Self-compassion has been found to decrease procrastination and increase mastery. And all of that is just because you cut yourself a little slack. Well, now that you know something about self-compassion and self-care, you have to do something about it because there is plenty of research findings that demonstrate the importance of the ability to attend to and meet your personal needs. Self-care has been found to increase empathy, immunologic functioning, and has been associated with lower levels of anxiety and depression. It decreases stress, which has a lot to do with a lot of the reasons we don't feel good in our bodies and in our lives. And it's an important thing to take really quite seriously. Self-care is not selfish. And this is a tie that has been made over and over again, and it's just fundamentally not true. There again is research that shows self-care allows people to also take care, take better care of others. If you are feeling good mentally and emotionally, then you have the resources to help care for others. You can't pour from an empty cup, put your own oxygen mask on first. Um, and loads of other cliches and sayings that tell you how important it is to take care of yourself so you can take care of others. The authors of the study actually argue that it is a lack of self-care during times of distress that decreases a person's ability to provide care and compassion and service to other people. Self-care makes sure that our needs are met. And in that wholeness, so to speak, we operate from a place of appreciation, gratitude, inner balance, and we have a lot of resources to give, and we can give without resentment. If you feel like your giving or your service is associated with resentment or unpleasant feelings about it, it is actually because you are depleted in your own self-care. All right, I'm going to talk to you about how to increase self-care, which is really interesting because the exact opposite of increasing self-care is to decrease self-criticism and quiet your inner critic. So I'm going to frame it in the positive. And it has been my experience that when I frame things in the positive, they don't pack the same punch as if I titled the podcast, how to decrease self-criticism would be much more popular than how to increase your self-compassion. Interesting little bit of information. So let's talk about awareness of that inner critic and what's going on for us. Our inner critic is usually very active when we are neglecting our own personal needs. This criticism directed at ourselves causes a lot of focus on fixing our weaknesses, which doesn't leave a whole lot of time to take care of ourselves. If we are obsessed with addressing all of our personal weaknesses because our inner critic is telling us that we have so very many of them, then we are not meditating or journaling or exercising or getting out in nature or going to lunch with friends because we don't think those things are important, nor will they help us fix our problems. See how that works? And over time, 
this harsh self-criticism just digs itself deep in its rooted pathways and it's our automatic and default responses to all of our personal shortcomings. When this happens, people become less and less aware of the self-criticism and its negative effect. It becomes the language of our life. It becomes the words that lull us to sleep. It's how we talk to ourselves and then that's all we know. So we need to learn how to replace self-criticism with constructive feedback. I've already given podcasts on feedback, constructive feedback, and all of that good stuff, but you have to learn how to do that for yourself. And having an awareness of your critical parts will allow you to change so that you are more attentive to self-care and self-improvement through a compassionate lens. So you have to decide how you want to go about quieting that inner critic. It is important to note that, or to remember that the inner critic has a job. Its job by its nature is not a bad job. Its job is to say, hey, you didn't measure up this time, you're gonna have to do better next time. Its job is to say, hey, you knew you should have done something different and you chose not to. So the inner critic is great. It has a really good job. So it's not the function. What the problem is, is the behavior that follows the inner critic and that self-critical voice. I'm going to put in a plug for values and the values podcast because part of the job of the inner critic is to help you figure out how to know your values and live aligned with them. So again, let's not assume that everything about the inner critic is a bad thing. It is not. And it is a mode of self-regulation, just like self-compassion and self-care is. And like all self-regulation, the basic assumption is that in order to grow and learn, we must have some internal monitor about how well we're doing and where we are, where we are on our path and what goals we want to accomplish. That is your inner critic. The problem about the inner critic or self-criticism is it generally focuses on the negative, like I said before, and its language to you is not supportive. It's usually very black and white, and it's terribly self-defeating therefore not particularly helpful. Self-criticism can be converted into constructive feedback by getting curious. So after noticing your critical voice, you might want to ask how you would talk to a friend about this exact same scenario. What words would you use? Would your tone of voice be pleasant or condemning? And then the other thing you can ask yourself is what can you learn from what has actually happened? What areas can you take and grow from? And when you adopt a curious stance towards yourself, you are decreasing that self-critical voice and increasing self-care. So you're not punishing yourself or being punitive because you wouldn't do that to a person you cared about. So when you do that, there's this internal desire to learn and grow and overcome the weakness in a way that is both physically and emotionally healthy. And this takes an incredible amount of work because you have to really, really rev up your self-awareness. A problem that often arises when you begin to notice your inner critic or that self-critical part of you is that you then become angry and judgmental of that part. And that is not helpful either. If you respond to negativity with negativity, then 
that just increases the negativity. The frustration grows, the inner critic gets louder, and you are in a downward spiral. Remember, your inner critic is a part of you that wants you to succeed and wants you to do better. I have a client, a teenage girl who has a very loud inner critic voice. And we work with this voice all the time. And she has a really good balance of understanding what this part wants for her and realizing that sometimes it's overactive and that there are times in her life when this inner critic part can actually quiet down and it's a it's actually representative in represented in multiple different images one of which is a person with a bullhorn yelling at her and then another one is a woman in black robes who looks like a judge. She kind of looks like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But it's important that she recognizes that getting mad at the inner critic is not useful. It just needs to learn how to do its job differently. And your job is to teach it how to do that by being more self-aware activating more self-compassion and growing in a larger, more robust practice of self-care. A prerequisite for self-care is to listen to what you need at every moment of the day. Now, that sounds tiresome and burdensome, and it's not really that finite, right? or infinite, which one? Anyway, it's not about every minute. It's just about realizing that when you start to feel some unpleasant feelings or you've come up against a challenge or a difficulty or a missed goal or a missed opportunity, that you start to pay attention to what you are saying to yourself. And then you stop and you get curious about that. That is the path to understanding what you truly need. And if you don't understand what you need, you can't give it to yourself. There are lots of different reasons why people have a difficult time with this. One is that there are people who just believe that in order to be a good person, they have to attend to everybody else's needs first, fastest, now. And if that is your way of operating, you know because you've experienced it, that you never get to meeting your own needs. Pleasing people at the expense of personal needs is driven by your own insecurities, your own lack, your own wanting or unmet needs. It's not because you're virtuous or wonderful or self-sacrificing or service-oriented. If you serve at the expense of your own needs, that's not a good thing. It is driven by your own misgivings about who and what you are in the world. And people pleasing is a terrible, terrible way to be in the world. Terrible. A people pleaser can never meet their own needs, will never have the opportunity to understand themselves and will always be flitted around by the wind because you can't please everybody all the time. So that kind of behavior is a search for self-esteem or self-worth through the recognition of others. And another reason that it is difficult to attend to your own needs is because there is a an over-focus on the future, which means you are living for something that has not yet happened or that you are hoping will happen or that is yet to come. If you are living in the future, you are by definition not living in the present. If you are not living in the present, you do not know what your needs are and how they are connected to what is going on for you now. So turning tuning into personal needs means 
tuning into what you need in the moment. If you are future tripping, which is what it is called in many therapeutic places, then you have no time to attend to the present. So stop doing that. The third way that it is hard or third reason that it is hard for people to meet their own needs or to attend or even know what they are is because the perceived importance of goals means that people will sacrifice things in the current moment to achieve something in the future. So if I have a goal of getting a promotion at work and there are very specific things that I have to do in order to make, meet that goal, I will sacrifice my friends, my hobbies, my sleep, my family, good nutrition, exercise, and everything else that I perceive as getting in the way of that goal. And that is another way that we do not meet our needs because we are not attending to the whole of us. Uh, fourth, I think it's four, um, another reason why we have a hard time meeting our own needs is that we don't know how we feel and we're too bloody afraid to deal with the emotions that are actually nothing more than information for you to get curious about so you understand what you need but do not have. An emotion is nothing more than information. It may be a lot of noisy information. It may be some unpleasant information. It might be pleasant information, but all emotions are, are information. And if you can't attend to your self or pay attention to yourself when you are receiving information in the form of frustration or jealousy or anger or sadness or contentment, then you are not going to be able to meet your personal needs. More often than not, our negative emotions are just telling us that we have needs that are not being met. So for example, if you didn't get to, invited to a party that everybody you know got invited to and you get jealous and angry, what you are learning from the emotions, jealousy, and anger is that you need connection. Connection is important to you. And you wanted to go to this party. If you, um, let's see, if you are staying up late in order to study for a test so that you can, I don't know, we'll go use the same example, you know, advance in your education and you wake up after the test is over and you're cranky and you're irritable and you find everybody annoying those are emotions that are telling you that what you need right now is rest you have overextended yourself or extended yourself past your capacity if you don't pay attention to those emotions you're not going to know how to take care of yourself in the moment positive emotions on the other hand generally let us know that we're in a good place and most of our needs are being met at that moment and if that is the case then we should continue to do what we are doing that makes us feel like our needs are being met eat well get good sleep go to lunch with friends get out in nature read a good book balance your life so that you have this equilibrium so to speak In order to know how to attend to your needs, you have to pay attention to your emotions. I'm going to say this again because this is a tricky one. Emotions are hard. We don't like them. We do a lot to avoid them. And if you're going, going to extract the right information about your personal needs from your emotional states, you better be able to investigate with curiosity and openness. This is where mindfulness can help. If you are unwilling to experience these emotions and you are unwilling to engage in aware, an awareness practice and instead you're going to avoid them, you're going to tamp them down, 
then you are not giving yourself the opportunity to learn. And then you decrease your self-care, you increase your inner critic's voice and your own self-criticism. And then you're going to call me and you're going to say, Stephanie, I still feel like crap. And I'm going to say, did you listen to the podcast? Right? So you have to build a self-compassion practice and this is going to take work. And sometimes building a self-compassion practice feels really awkward and unnatural because we are not used to talking to ourselves with any kind of grace or forgiveness at all. So if you are the kind of person who has a nonstop self-critical voice, this is going to be difficult for you. You are going to actually have to maybe write things down or practice saying these things in the mirror. And like any habit that you are trying to build or any muscle you want to grow, the more you do it, the easier it will become. So this is not about not doing self-critical things. This is not about quieting the self-critical voice. This is about adding the component of self-compassion. By adding the component of self-compassion and self-care, your critical voice will just naturally decrease, okay? So practice, practice, practice. It'll be fun, I promise. You'll love it. Okay, so I've used the word self multiple times. And obviously self-care starts with you and you kind of have to do it yourself. But that does not mean you are not actively going to look for social support because self-care includes a community and it is important to find community while you are trying to build your reservoir of self-compassion and self-care. Because sometimes you just need other people, other people in your life to help you out. And so you don't have to do this alone. And there are lots of ways you can connect with people to facilitate self-care. It's Self-care is social connectedness. Self-care is being out in nature. Self-care is finding people who you have things in common with. And so there's a lot of places and spaces where you can say, hey, I am going to engage others in my self-care practices. Also, if the things that you're going through are particularly difficult and they have, there's a lot of negative self-talk or self-criticism around the difficulty, you might be blaming yourself, you might have had a legitimate role in your difficulties, but reaching out for some compassion and for, for some empathy from the people in your lives is really great. They can offer you something that you are struggling offering yourself. And there might be some real practical things they can do to help you in some of your most difficult times. And you have to be willing to ask. This is not time to be prideful. This is not time to think you can do everything on your own. There is a time to reach out and ask for help. And so you're not a burden. You don't need to be ashamed. There's nothing wrong with asking someone in your circle to give you the help that you need and really rally and gather those good people around you. That being said, it is entirely possible that we also have people in our lives who are not good for us when we are particularly down or distraught. And so while you want to gather and rally the troops who are going to help and support you, you might also have to do a little bit of distancing from those who may not be particularly supportive. And if it's difficult to figure out which one or who is who, there's a few simple questions you can ask. And this does not necessarily mean you're cutting people out for good. It might just mean that right now, in these particular instances, and they can be very specific, these people are not particularly good for you right? So you can ask yourself things like, uh, do I feel supported by this person? Does this person wish the best for me? Does this person try and bring me down? 
does this person speak negatively to me? So just a few questions gives you some framework with which to figure out if you need to shift your community a little bit. Like I said, this doesn't mean you have to get rid of people. This just means that we don't stay in our relationships unaware of the effect they have on us. Okay. We need people who help us facilitate self-care in ourselves. And not everybody can do that. And that's okay. It's not everybody's job to do it. So we don't even have to, we don't even have to worry about that, right? We just pivot and find some different people. Okay, so I'm going to wrap this up by going through kind of all of the things that we talked about. We've got this self-critical voice that really focuses on our weakness because we it ran into a weakness and it saw that we failed at something and it gets really critical. And then in that critical place, we start to self-neglect and we don't attend to our needs. We stuff our emotions down. We ignore the physical symptoms of sickness and headache and heartburn and indigestion. And we chalk it up to the dinner we ate last night when really it's just a lot of physical symptoms of an overinvestment in your negative parts. Self-compassion says we run up against a weakness. We offer up some self-compassion, which naturally leads to self-care. And then we don't suffer nearly as many of those unpleasant headaches and neck aches and digestive tract problems, except of course for the dinner that we ate the night before. But that is temporary. So just this morning, I was listening to my husband talk about how he shoulda, woulda, coulda. And here's the scenario. Had a motorcycle that hasn't been licensed since 2006. And so he's getting the motorcycle licensed because he's going to use it for some grandbabies and it's going to be very fun. And this has been quite a project because when you don't license a motorcycle, you don't drive a motorcycle. And if you don't drive a motorcycle, a lot of things happen. Batteries die, fuses blow, gas tank gets curdled. Harley changes the fuse recommendation and you have to go back to the Harley shop multiple times and the spark plugs are bad and you have every spark plug for every other motorcycle in the garage, but you don't have one for this motorcycle. And so you have to go to the Harley shop and get another set of spark plugs times two so that you always have extras and then you have to siphon the gas out because it occurred to you that it's probably rancid breasty skunky gas and so you do that but that doesn't work because the gas is like cottage cheese right and it's a lot of i knew better i should never have let this happen if only i had done this and if only i had done that and I know that your problems are probably not quite as recreational driven as getting a motorcycle ready for your grandbabies. And I know some of your self-criticism comes from really heavy things, but the I woulda, I shoulda, I coulda narrative that you've got going on is not compassionate. And so that's what I want to leave you with. Self-compassion is research. There is research behind the benefits of self-compassion. There are studies that show self-compassion reduces anxiety and depression and ruminations, increases well-being, increases resilience, is more motivating than self-criticism. This stuff is real, people. So this is a little pick-me-up post control and influence and three circles and boundaries and all the stuff that I've been doing. So go out and buy yourself the mindful self-compassion workbook by Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer and start doing a chapter a day. 
and then share with me the benefits of your self-compassion practice, because I would love to hear them. Kristen Neff, who is a self-compassion guru, said, unlike self-criticism, which asks if you're good enough, self-compassion asks what's good for you and have a great week. Thank you.